We come this morning to our sermon passage, and this morning we're continuing on in our sermon series in the Ten Commandments, and we are on the Seventh Commandment um, this morning. It's printed for you in your bulletin if you need it. We'll be reading, as we do every week, the first two verses of Exodus 20, which is kind of the introduction to the Ten Commandments, and then uh, verse uh, 13. I put 14 there, but it's 13. But before we read, this is a true story, by the way, and I heard it a number of years ago. A woman, a student at a seminary, has been in class and in the library studying all day. She's tired, she's ready to go home, and as she's walking out of the seminary library to the parking lot, she notices there's just two cars there. It's hers and a car that belongs to a man that lives in the same apartment complex. Well, she heads to her car, and she gets in, she tosses her bag down, she's ready to go home, she goes to crank the car, it will not start. She's like, after a long day, now the car won't start. She doesn't know what to do, and she sees the man whose other car is in the parking lot. He walks out, um, and she calls out to him. She knows him, they're friends. Um, Hey, my car won't start. Can you give me a ride? back to the apartment complex. It's four miles away. Can you give me a ride? And the man says, no, I can't. Um, I told my wife I would never be alone with a woman that wasn't her, and so I can't give you a ride back. And he gets in his car, and he leaves her there in that parking lot, alone in the dark, four miles away from home. It's a true story. And I've thought about it often. I've thought about what was going through the guy's mind. I'm sure if we asked him, he wasn't going to say, like, I don't like her, and I wish her poorly. (laughs) He would have said, well, you know, I'm taking very seriously the commandment to not commit adultery to the point that I'm going to avoid even the hint, even the possibility that someone would, would accuse me, maybe, of that. I'm sure that's what he would have said. But I've thought more about what the woman thought and felt that night. What was going through her head as she's experiencing this. That night she was not a person to him. She was not a person. She was a threat. She was a a temptation, a danger. She was an enemy that he needed to get away from as quickly as he could. Which I guess is why it did not enter his mind to, I don't know, give her the car, let her drive back to the apartment complex and he can walk. Or she can drive back and then his wife can come back and get him. Either way, either way, he allowed a desire to obey God in a sense, cloud his vision to the person in need that was directly in front of him. Now I can't help when I hear that story um, to think about how Jesus interacted with women in his life, and in his ministry. We have a number of instances in the Gospels. We preached through one, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago in particular. Jesus, in John chapter 4, he's talking to a woman at a well in the middle of the day. It's called the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's in view of everybody in town. In fact, she's out there at that time during the day because she is friendless. She has a reputation. She's been married five, she has five ex-husbands. She's living with a man that's not her husband. But Jesus, on purpose, 
is there at the time of day when she and she alone will be coming to that well. He didn't see her as a threat. He saw her as a person. A person to be loved. A person to be sought after. A person to be befriended and not treated as a threat. As a danger. As an enemy. And not just in that instance, but in every instance in the life of Jesus, when it came down between, number one, protecting his reputation and the possibility of gossip in his relationships with people, or number two, seeing and valuing the person in front of him, he took taking on the bad reputation every single time. Every single time. Because for Jesus, people were the point. A reputation was not the point. Building a ministry platform for him was not the point. The point was people. Obedience to God should never lead us to a way of life that makes other people feel lesser or treats other people like they are a threat to be pushed away. So what I want to do this morning is unpack a little bit more of the seventh commandment to see it, how it can lead us in lives that honor God, that honor other people, and honor ourselves. So with that said, this is Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, and verse uh, 14. God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. So I pray in these moments as we look into the treasure of your word that we would not miss your heart when we're talking about commandments but that rather we would see that you are a God who loves us and are leading us in freedom and you show us what that freedom means. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just a little uh, recap of the last few weeks. The Ten Commandments do not begin with a list of things to do. We see it right there in those first two verses of chapter 20. God starts by talking about who He is and what He has accomplished apart from the work of the Israelites whatsoever. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And when God sent Moses to Egypt to be the, the, the human instrument to declare that God was setting them free, Moses didn't show up with the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, here's these ten things, and if you guys do them you know, over these two years. He didn't give them a time frame, like you need to accomplish this and then you can be set free. Moses showed up declaring freedom that was going to happen. God freed his people from slavery. And then only after they had been freed, apart from anything they did, did he teach them how to walk and live in that freedom. The principle there is one that runs throughout Scripture. Grace goes first always. It's true of us as well. We are those who have been redeemed in Christ Jesus apart from any contribution. The only thing we bring to the table in our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And God frees us in Christ. And now we don't live lives where we now have a blank slate. Now we're trying to earn a place. And now we're trying to uh, uh, earn God's love for us. No, His grace has moved upon us first, has given us and shown us a love we did not earn and cannot lose. And now He teaches us how to live as people who walk in that love, who draw upon that love as our foundation. And that's what the first commandments, uh, first four commandments walk through our relationship with God. It speaks about us looking to nowhere else for our worth and value. Having no other God. 
It speaks about us living in this life-giving, foundational, vital relationship with God as our nourishment and our strength. And us receiving rest from Him, not as a wage, not as a paycheck, but as a gift. That we are people who can rest in who God says we are. And all of this transforms not only how we see our relationship with God, so not just this vertical notion of my relationship with God, but in the last six commandments, it expands out to answer the question, how does this impact my horizontal relationship with other people? If grace goes first always, and all those things in the first four commandments are true, what does that mean for my relationship with other people. And so the fifth commandment, we ran it a few weeks, it teaches us to honor our father and mother, which isn't just like kids listen to your parents. It teaches us how to interact and deal with the past and the histories that make us us. How do we process that? How do we deal with that as people who are being set free by God? And then last week we looked at the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. And I talked about that leads us in a way of life that is profoundly pro-life, not in the Republican Party or Democratic Party sense, not in politics, but a, a, a way of life that is committed to the life and the good of other people. And that the lives and the good of other people are more important than our sex lives, which we're talking about this morning. It's more important than our possessions, which we'll talk about next week. It's more important than us being able to use our words to to get a a one-up on somebody else. That's what the ninth commandment's about, not bearing false witness. So this morning, we're looking at the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And this is who we are in the gospel. We are those whose bodies matter. And so what we do with our bodies matters. We are those whose bodies matter, and so what we do with our bodies matters. Now the Israelites are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. In the last two months, they have watched their entire world flip upside down. They went from bottom of society as slaves in Egypt, and they have watched God systematically pick apart the power of Pharaoh and destroy (laughs) the uh, images of all these false gods in Egypt. And so now that's kind of flipped upside down, and they have to be asking the question, right? We're not in slavery anymore. We're not under that king anymore. God's bringing us into this new kingdom. He's calling us his people and he's our God. What is that going to mean? What is that going to mean? What kind of freedom is this? Is it the freedom to be like the Egyptians? Like has the script just flipped and now we're on top and we can treat people however we want to just like the Egyptians treated us however they wanted to? Because for generations, the Israelites had been in Egypt and they had been told that your bodies belong to Pharaoh. He tells you what kind of work you do. And he tells you the quota you need to meet. And if you don't meet it, you're lazy. Get back to work. We see that in the first few chapters of Exodus. Your bodies and your children's bodies belong to Pharaoh. To the point that in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh has grown nervous because the Israelites have grown in number. And he's thinking like, well, if they decide to rebel... They can take us out. There's a lot of them. And so he tells midwives, when Hebrew babies are being born, if they're boys, kill them. Kill them. We've got to get this population under control. Pharaoh was saying, your baby's bodies belong to me. Your body belongs to me. And so the Israelites are being set free from this slavery. Will the freedom they've been given be the freedom 
to become like the Egyptians? Are they now on top? And they can just kind of treat whoever they come across however they want. No. No. God has freed them for a new way of life. A way of life that has not existed in this world yet. Not to become like the Egyptians. Not so they can do whatever they want to other people and chase after every desire and fulfill it like they're animals. Because that's not true freedom. That's just a different kind of bondage. So God tells them here, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. What he's saying is your body matters. And so what you do with your body matters. And how you treat other people and their bodies matters. And not just matters, but your body is, is loved. Now it's easy for us, and it's been easy throughout human history, we treat religion like it's just about spiritual stuff, right? Religion is just like my spiritual beliefs about the world and kind of how I feel about myself and God. But in the physical, is a completely different thing. But God's not just interested in saving our souls. That's not what Christianity is. It's not just an issue of, I hope that my soul can get saved, but forget my body. If it was, then Jesus never would have needed to come and, in the words of John chapter 1, put on flesh to dwell with us. But because sin has broken and marred all of who we are, body and soul, and because being body and soul is essential to what it makes, means to be human, the eternal Son of God took on an entire human nature, body and soul. And did the body of Jesus matter? Of course. It's the foundation of our faith. The body of Jesus that hung upon that cross. The body of Jesus that was raised from the dead and broke forth in that tomb in, in glorified victory. That body mattered. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, if the body of Jesus is not raised, then our faith is in vain. Then all this is empty. But in Jesus, God would not leave a single part of what makes us us, a single part of what has been ruined in sin and misery to be unhealed and abandoned to futility. It is so easy in this world to hate your body. It's so easy. We're taught, we're taught in commercials and ads to hate our bodies. To hate it. We're, we're taught to hate the size of our body. We're taught 99.9% .9 of us to hate the shape of our body, to hate the way this part looks, to hate the way it doesn't move the way it used to. We are taught, in essence, to hate ourselves because if we hate ourselves, we'll spend money. If we hate ourselves, they can use us to sell us something. Because a body that you hate is a body that is easy to mistreat. A body you hate is, is a body that is easy to degrade with poisonous drugs or cheap sex or pornography or violence. But God does not hate your body. Because He does not hate you and your body is part of who you are. I want you to hear that clearly. God does not hate your body. So you don't have to either. doesn't mean your body's perfect. Doesn't mean it works the way you would like it to, or even the way it, in, in, uh, apart from sin, was designed to work. 
And yes, one day God will heal our bodies of the scars and the disabilities we may face. And God does not ask us to pretend that there aren't difficult days in our bodies. There are. But at no point, at no point along the way, does He hate your body. And you don't have to either. Your body matters. What you do in that body and with that body matters. So that's who we are in the gospel. People whose bodies matter. Not just souls. Souls matter, of course. But all of who you are matters to God. I think it's one of the reasons why we have things like baptism, which we confessed earlier, and we have the Lord's Supper. These are very physical things, right? When you're baptized, water is put on you. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are holding a physical thing in your hand that you eat and you drink. In all of these ways, God is engaging with us, not just in a quote-unquote spiritual way, not just telling us things to think about, but lest we uh, limit the meaning of what He's doing to just some idea of the soul, He communicates to us in, in physical things, in one another, in the touch, in hugs, in handshakes, in all those things, that we matter. Your body matters. That brings me to my second section. How does this lead us to live as God's free people? So our call to worship this morning was from the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, a little bit of background on that. This, uh, 1 Corinthians was written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul had been traveling around the Greek world planting churches. He would go to different cities and start a new church, stay there a while, get it set up, move on to the next one. Well, he had gone to Corinth, which was this massive ancient city, and he had planted a church and he stayed there about a year and a half. And then he moved on. I think Ephesus was next, if I remember correctly. And while he leaves, and then he gets a letter from the church in Corinth, and somebody from Corinth travels to Ephesus to be like, hey, <laughs> things have gone really poorly. It's chaotic. We're disagreeing about everything. People won't take Lord's Supper together. The rich are getting there earlier and eating all the food. And then the poor get off work and they show up and there's nothing left. What in the world is happening? What should we do? And so they write him out, literally, a number of different questions. Have we misunderstood your message, essentially? I think we've, we've gone astray somewhere in here. And one of the main problems in Corinth, there were people who had come to faith in Jesus, and they said, my soul has been set free. I'm having these powerful emotional experiences in worship, and I am free. But my body, my body doesn't really matter, right? Spirit's important. The body's not that important. And so what they were doing is like, well, the body's kind of like an animal, right? And animals have desires. Animals get hungry and they go eat. So they're like, well... You know, if our body's going to be destroyed anyway and our soul's really what matters, we'll just do whatever we want to physically. Physically, I'm going to fulfill every desire I have. And this means I am truly set free. Paul actually quotes them. I talked about it earlier. They were saying, I have the right to do anything. This is the freedom that's mine. I have the right to do anything. And they said, just like food was made to satisfy hunger, the body was designed to satisfy desire. So it doesn't really matter after all. And God will destroy both food and the body. And this kind of thinking was actually pretty common in the ancient world, in the Greek world that Corinth was in. The idea was like, 
True salvation is gaining the right amount of knowledge and your soul is set free, but the body's kind of evil. They would, they would even say the body's a prison that our soul is kind of trapped in. And our goal is to one day be at the point where we've left this body behind. The soul is good, the body is evil, but it, and it won't last. God's going to destroy it, so it kind of doesn't matter what you do. But what does Paul say here? It's remarkable. It's easy to pass over quickly because we may have heard it before. But Paul says this. No, the body is for the Lord. Get this. And the Lord is for the body. Your body matters. The Lord is for your body. He is pro your body. (laughs) And the body you have is not meaningless. It is not meaningless. It is for the Lord. Their bodies aren't designed to be destroyed, as he says right here. They're as, they're as important as the most important building they can imagine, a temple. Your body matters. Our bodies are incredibly valuable to God, and they should be for us as well. And that's how we live as God's free people. We take God at His word that our bodies matter, and that what we do with our bodies matters. We take Him at His word, and we believe that He knows about our body better than we do. We don't denigrate. We don't beat down. We don't hate something that Jesus has died to redeem. We walk in the freedom of this to turn to specifically what the seventh commandment talks about with adultery and sexual desire. We walk in this freedom by putting our desires and putting sex in its proper place. In Corinth, they thought these sexual desires are so powerful that they must be fulfilled, and it doesn't really matter because the body kind of doesn't matter anyway. But Paul says, no, your body's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, and so he's going to guide you in how best to use that body and live in that body. And what we do with our desires is we put them in sex. We put it in its proper place. They're not ultimate. They are not the most important thing. Now desires, especially sexual desires, can feel like the most powerful thing in the world. And I'm not saying it's always easy to put those desires in their proper place. Desires can burn like a fire. Scripture recognizes this. Song of Solomon speaks about it. It says uh, desires are a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Desires can feel like too much. They can feel scary, but we don't have to be afraid of our even most powerful and potent desires. Because part of the experience of salvation is that Jesus is giving us a new heart so that we no longer fight these desires with two hands tied behind our back. So in the moment when desires feel so powerful and they rage so powerfully, we can draw upon the reality of His love for us. We can draw upon the sufficiency of His grace. We can draw on who He says we are in the gospel and put our desires in their proper place entrusted to God. Every time we say no to temptations, we are entrusting our desires to God and believing that He is wiser than we are. That He will not drop the ball when we entrust ourselves to Him. And also, when we fail at this, that we can flee to the sufficiency of His grace for us. That's what we were talking about in John chapter 8. The woman who was caught 
in adultery, dragged in front of Jesus, he did not have condemnation for her. He had freedom. And he said, go and leave your life of sin. Don't keep going down that road. But it was not condemnation when she was in front of him. Another thing we can do, this doesn't mean closing ourselves off to the reality of desires that we have. It's actually an invitation for us to trace our desires deeper. This might be a weird question, and don't answer out loud. But what does it mean to desire sex? It can't simply be a moment of physical pleasure. It can't. It's limited in time and experience, right? What we are seeking, I I submit, when we are seeking after sex, when those desires roar within us, we are seeking to feel seen and wanted. We are seeking connection and knowledge of another person. We are seeking acceptance and not rejection. I know this sounds weird, but when we are desiring sex, it is meant to be a pointer to us to seek after God. Not something temporal, not something limited in time, but something eternal. The 20th century writer uh, Bruce Marshall, he wrote a short story that actually said it this way. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. This idea is what I'm talking about. Sexual desire and all of our desires really are about so much more than the moment of physical sex. Our restless hearts are reaching out to find home. A home that ultimately we can't find in the act of sex. And as C.S. Lewis once wrote, If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What he's saying is our desires lead us beyond the bounds of what we understand and they point us to the eternal sufficiency of God. We are those whose bodies matter. What we do in our bodies matter. And how we live out the freedom of this is entrusting our bodies to God, including our desires, tracing our desires to Him, who's the only one who can truly satisfy our hearts. Now don't hear me wrongly. Sex is a good thing. Sex is a good thing to be enjoyed within a marriage. It's a means of procreation. It's a physical expression of intimacy. It's, a, it's something to be enjoyed. But even in the greatest of marriages, sex is a limited thing. It's limited in time. But the freedom God has brought to us means that we do not have to be dominated by our desires. We don't have to be defined in who we are by sex, the act of sex, or sexuality, or any of those things. It's not the most important thing about who we are. We can entrust all of who we are to Jesus, and He can be trusted, soul and body, and will not drop the ball for us. That brings me to my last section. How does this freedom lead us into mission? Now, we live in a world that treats sex like the ultimate thing. When you tend to ask somebody, what's the most free person you can think of? Ask a teenage boy especially. Not every teenage boy. Um, But (laughs) a truly free person is thought of as somebody who can explore every desire 
without consequence. Every physical desire somebody has, chase after it. That true freedom is accepting and even embracing our desires. All is good things. Kind of what, whatever that means for everybody else. So I'll, I'll do me and everybody else can deal with the consequences. But what always happens when somebody chases after that is that women and kids especially, but men too, get degraded and get treated like they're things. In so many ways, human history is the history of men chasing after their desires without thinking about consequences for everybody else. And who tends to wear the weight of that? Women and children. But men too. Now we often in this world treat sexuality and somebody's sexuality as the most important thing about them. And I'm not just talking about out there, outside the church. It's true in the church as well. I mean, how many conversations over the last two decades have centered around the church wrestling with issues of sexuality? I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not the most important thing about a person who's standing in front of us. The truth is this morning that our bodies matter and what we do with our bodies matter. And that leads us to know that other people's bodies matter, which leads us to treat people differently. And this leads us to mission as we begin to treat this way. This is what I mean. People are meant to experience the power of the gospel when Christians do not treat them as if they are ultimately defined by sex. People are meant to experience the trueness, the reality of the love of Jesus when we don't treat them like their sexuality, the things they've done in their body, whether or not they've had sex, is the most important thing about them. Now, that, whether that be whatever they profess their sexuality to be, or the number of people they've had sex with, or whether they've had sex at all, no, we don't denigrate people with how we speak about them or how we look at them. We realize that for us, issues of sexuality cannot be answered apart from how it affects other people. For Christians, issues of desire and how we deal with desire, it's not just an individual thing and it's not a casual thing. We have to stop and ask questions about how it impacts a wider community and how that reverberates out. That's what God was telling them here. You shall not commit adultery. He was essentially saying the marriage of your neighbor is precious to you. It is important to you. It is dear to you, or is to be dear and important to you. That family over there is important to you and is to be protected even from you. That is to be treated with respect. Now what I think part of that means is that we purposely work against the tendency that's so powerful in our world to sexualize others and treat them like objects and things and not people. Of course, the obvious example of that is something like pornography, an entire industry that is built up around videos and pictures of people uh, that are put out just for the pleasure of other folks. People get degraded and used up in that industry. It's destructive, and not just in the sense like it's bad that somebody sees it, 
The entire production of it, it destroys women especially. Absolutely. Tears them apart. But I also mean this in the sense of my introduction. The man who thought he cannot help this woman who's in need because he said he'd never be alone with a woman that wasn't his wife, he was treating her like an object as well. He was treating her like a thing, not a person. What we have to do is start treating people not as threats or temptations, not as things and objects, but seeing people created in the image and likeness of God with inherent dignity and worth who are valuable and meaningful. We don't treat them like objects and things. We don't say, and I have heard so many Christians say this, and it, I, I will just tell you straight out, I am enraged every time I hear it. Something happens to a woman, she's sexually abused or something, and they say, well, she didn't want them to look, she did not want them to touch, she shouldn't address that way. Now, maybe you've said it before, I'm not trying to say like I'm mad at you or anything, it, it enrages me every time I hear it. And this is why, because it's exactly the kind of mindset that Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 5. He's talking to an audience that is mostly men that, that, uh, that would say, well, we don't commit adultery. And he tells them that if they have an issue with adultery, it's a, a, a heart matter for them. He tells them anyone who's looked at, a, looked at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. And what he doesn't say is a thing about the woman being a threat or responsible for men's lust of her. He doesn't say, you commit adultery in your heart, but I get it because she was dressed that way. No, what he tells them is that you've got an issue with that. Pluck your eye out. Pluck your eye out. If you've got a problem with lust, pluck your eye out. Now, that's not Jesus telling you to go home and like, Literally pluck your eye out. That's not what he was saying. Not at all. But what he was saying is this. Men take responsibility for your lust. Don't throw your lust and the blame for your lust on to women. Start treating women like what they are. The image of God. With value and worth. Not a thing for you to look at. We honor people. It's what it means to be God's people. We begin to see people as valuable, as worthy. We begin to live that way. We honor people. We honor and respect children. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but one of the reasons there are so many warnings against adultery in Scripture is because of what it does to children. So much of the talk about adultery in Scripture is a protection for children, so they would not grow up wondering who their dad is. So they would not grow up under the shadow of gossip or accusation from other people. So these children wouldn't bear the weight of the mistakes of their biological parents. It's a protection for kids. And we honor sexuality, and we honor the reality of marriage by not just putting desires in their proper place, but also marriage in its proper place. It's easy to grow up in the church world and think that marriage is an ultimate goal. 
It is. I, I grew up in youth group. I went to the purity conferences and the, you know, the, the uh, promise rings and the whole thing. And it was made out to be like the most important thing for you to do is to not have sex. And the reason why is because if you, you hold yourself off, you're going to have the best sex in the world when you get married. Like straight out is just said that way in youth groups. Now, I'm not saying casual sex isn't a problem. It is an issue. It is something to be addressed. But we put, uh, if we put marriage on that kind of pedestal, I'll tell you, there's an entire industry of therapists right now that have training that are working with kids that grew up in youth groups who then got married, wound up in an abusive or unfulfilling marriage, and are now having to work through that because they had been told marriage is the ultimate goal. If you get married, everything else is kosher after that. But not only can the momentary fulfillment of a sexual desire, I talked about this earlier, not make us complete, even something as wonderful and great as marriage can't make us complete. The other person, even the, if you have the best spouse in the world, I do, they cannot bear the weight of being the foundation of your identity and your everything. That's not what marriage is designed to be. Life does not begin or end with marriage. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a gift in life that some people get to experience. It's a lifelong commitment of friendship and intimacy that is designed to reflect the relationship of Jesus to His church, but it's not ultimate. It cannot bring true meaning. It can only point in true but imperfect ways to the pure and unending love of God. For us. And so, as people who are told here, you shall not commit adultery, it's not just like, okay, I'll avoid chasing after somebody who's already married. That's not the, you know, that's not the only stri- the, the thing that God's doing. It's, um, he's leading us to realize that our bodies matter, that what we do in our bodies matter, and we can entrust ourselves, all of who we are. Even those, those potent, powerful desires to Him. And allow Him to lead us. To put our desires in their proper place. To understand the importance of other people. To put marriage and what it delivers and brings in its proper place. And this, as we walk in it, will bring us true freedom. This is where we're going to see transformation. I think there's a reason why, a lot of people have noted this across the years. The vast majority of churches are made up majority of women. It's true. It's not just true in our culture. It's true across all cultures, just about. What is it about the message of Jesus that draws in women? That they keep coming back? I think it's because in a world that objectifies women so often. In a world that treats them as things or threats or even property, they found in the revelation of who God is in Jesus something else. They found something else. They found a place, if it be the only place in their life and in their world where they are seen and known and loved, not because they're a thing or an object, but because they're a daughter of God. So who are we in the gospel, friends? 
are those whose bodies matter. And what we do in our bodies matter. How do we walk in this freedom? We don't have to be afraid of our desires or anybody else's. And we can treat people like their bodies matter because they do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your guidance of us. That you aren't just interested in saving our souls and then whatever our bodies do, our bodies do. But that you uh, have come for all of who we are. And you guide us in all of who we are. Because you are redeeming every part of who we are. So I pray, Lord, that you would allow us the grace by your Spirit to entrust our bodies to you. Even those potent, powerful uh, desires that we entrust ourselves to you and find you faithful time and time again. Teach us to walk in this way and empower us as we do. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.